we've come together to do some meditation. And before doing that, I think it is uh, an important aspect to realize what we're trying to accomplish by doing meditation and how to accomplish that. And also another very important idea that we have to get in our minds is why are we doing this? Because most people aren't doing it at all. So why should we do it? And the answer is not because we're Buddhists. Because there are many Buddhists who don't meditate. So we have to be very, very clear why we want to do it. Because it's not an easy thing to do. And if we want to do something which is difficult, we have to have a very strong commitment. We have to have a very strong understanding in our own mind that this is really important. Now, we have to look at ourselves as consisting of two parts, that mind and body, nama rupa. And that's all there is to us. We can't find anything else. Now, we're all very familiar with our body. We have seen it in the mirror. We have looked after it for many, many years. In the beginning, our parents looked after it and they made sure that the body was all right. But now we've been looking after it. And we look after it with uh, great attention. We make sure that we get decent food. We don't want to eat any poison. We'd be fools, wouldn't we, if we were to eat poison. And we also want to eat food which will keep this body in good condition. So it has to be nourishing. Then we have to have a rest at night. We have to have a bed to put this body into. We have to have a house. Doesn't have to be quite as big as this one, but it has to be a house which puts a roof over one's head where we are sheltered from the uh, um, difficulties of hot sun, cold wind, rain. So we put the body inside this house and the body feels more comfortable. We have chairs that we sit in to feel a little bit relaxed. Then we wash the body. We don't like to go around dirty. And we also wash the clothes that we put on. Now, everybody looks thick and span. We don't like to show ourselves that we have big dirt spots on us. And if we did have them, we'd quickly run back in the house and wash it off. And of course, we also have to have some kind of exercise. We must do something with this body. If we were to keep this body completely still, it would atrophy. It couldn't move anymore. If one is sick for a long time and has been lying in bed, it's very difficult after three or four months to walk again. One has to start again. And then, of course, when this body gets sick, as so many of you gentlemen know, everybody comes running to the doctor and says, doctor, it hurts here and doctor, it hurts there and wouldn't you give me some medicine? And then the doctor obliges and gives some medicine. So we're looking after this body. And yet, this body is a servant. And the master is the mind. And we're looking after this servant with such attention, with great detail, with everything we can do. And the master we're forgetting about. 
before getting completely the fact that the master needs to be looked after even more thoroughly than the servant. Now, if that happened in our house, we'd be called fools by all our friends. Look at these people. They're looking at the, after their servants beautifully, and the master gets nothing. Well, nobody does that. And yet, in our own household, we do this. In our own household, we are attentive to this servant who, without the master, wouldn't be able to do a thing. Now, just imagine, and it doesn't take much imagination, that you have a body lying here that hasn't got a mind in it. You can do anything with it. You can cut it in bits and pieces. It won't say a thing. It's just a, a body, a piece of flesh, that's all. With some bones and sinews and blood and, and bile and all the rest of it. But once you've got the master there, then there you have a living being. The first verse in the Dhammapada starts out with mind is the master. Now, exactly what we do for our body, that we have to do for our mind. So the first thing that we can think of is that this mind needs a wash, just like the body does. It needs to have a cleanup because it is being attacked constantly by outward influences which have a reaction in the mind, the reaction of like and dislike, of hate, of uh, resistance, rejection, worry, fear displeasure, envy, jealousy, competition, all these things which reflect in the mind and give the mind the kind of um, scratches that are, when they get deep enough, very hard to heal. So what we need to do is we look out, have to look after it constantly and wash it all the time. Just like we don't let this body get very dirty, we wash it before it gets really dirty. We've got to do that with the mind. The purification of the mind is what I'm talking about. And the purification of mind means that we can momentarily be without, completely without what are called the five hindrances, the panchanirvaranas. When we are completely without those, that is a moment of total purification, which means, in other words, one moment of concentration in meditation is one moment of purification. Because when there is concentration, there is nothing else alive. We, the Lord Buddha said that we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Now can you just imagine that? Luckily we don't have that many. But we can have them. But we can never have two at the same time. And that is lucky for us, because while we're being concentrated, we can't have anything arise which has unwholesome aspects. We can't have any sensual desires, because if we do have them, then we can't concentrate. We can't have any ill will, because if we do have it, we can't concentrate. We can't have any sloth and torpor, because we'll fall asleep instead of concentrating. We can't have any restlessness and worry, because if we do, there's no concentration. And we can't have any skeptical doubt about what we're doing, because again, we couldn't concentrate. These are the five hindrances, which beset everybody to different degrees. Some have more of this one, some have more of the other one, some have already worked a little bit on it and got them down a bit. But until Arahant, 
everybody's got them, all five of them. As I say, just a matter of degree. But at one moment of concentration in meditation, those are not arising. And therefore, that moment is a moment of purification. It's giving a mind a wash. And as we do this more often, obviously, we get the mind purer and purer. It doesn't yet mean that we get rid of those hindrances completely. But what it does mean is that they're being cut down like the weeds in a garden. You don't uproot them right away because they're hard to uproot. They've got deep roots. But you can cut down on them. And when they're more cut down, they do not obstruct so much. One can see the flowers in the garden also. They are not so enormously large and the same is in one's mind. So this is the first aspect of meditation. And why it is not an, an old person's fancy or uh, something to do when one can't find anything else to do, it is an absolute necessity for mental health. There is no getting around that one. It is that which keeps one healthy in the mind and therefore healthy in the body. As I said yesterday, but I will repeat it again, Lord Buddha was called the great physician, and Dhamma was called the great medicine. And it is the kind of medicine that just like when the doctors prescribe a medicine for their patients, and the patient gets this nice bottle with the stuff in it and takes it home and puts it on a table and everybody who comes in the house is shown this beautiful bottle and say, well, look, isn't this a lovely bottle? And it's got marvelous medicine in it. The doctor said it's going to cure me. But he never opens the bottle and never swallows the stuff. He's not going to get better, is he? Well, the same is with this medicine. We've got to swallow it. And swallow it in regular doses just like any prescription says, three times a day, one teaspoon after meals or something like that. Same thing with the Dhamma, at least three times a day, until it becomes second nature and then it's all whole day. Now this is the purification that we can expect from meditation. And even if we can't sit in concentration more than one minute, We've got one minute more of purification than we would have had if we hadn't had. So one must never think, because one isn't very concentrated, one isn't getting into the deepest absorption, that the whole thing is useless and I'll do it next time, next lifetime around. That's not the way to look at it. It is of great benefit, even if it's only one moment. The next thing that we do with our body is to feed it the proper stuff. Well, here we have a mind that needs to be fed. Everything that is nourishing. It's a mind that needs to be kept away from anything that's poisonous. The mind that needs to be protected from anything that can hurt it. Just like we protect this body, we do not voluntarily run into a barbed wire fence. We do not voluntarily um, trip over stones and hurt our uh, toes. We look after it so that it's protected, kept in one piece, no bumps and scratches. If we do have one, we heal it. Same with the mind, no bumps and scratches. A mind which is not trained in meditation has very little strength and power 
to protect itself. It will think whatever arises, as you will notice as soon as we start meditating, you will notice it thinks whatever it arises, and it also thinks that which hurts it. Only we ourselves are hurt by our unwholesome thinking. Where we also can then affect others is a second consideration. Our own karma is involved, our own happiness is involved. And if our own happiness does not arise, certainly we won't make anybody else happy. It is extremely uh, difficult to give what we haven't got ourselves. But we want to give uh, a gift to somebody. We first have to have the money to buy that gift with. If we haven't got it, then we can't give it. So if we want to be a source of happiness and peace to other people, we have to have that to give. And by being able to um, nourish the mind with that what is good and keep the mind away from bumps and scratches, from that which hurts it, we will have an inner resource. There's the inner source of peace and happiness inside of us, which will be like a rock that we can be secure on. The untrained mind can't do it. The untrained mind is subject to all the um, outward stimuli and contacts, the contacts that we make through our senses. We are always seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling and thinking, the six senses. And the untrained mind is subject to that. It will respond, sometimes respond by wanting and sometimes respond by trying to get away from. So it doesn't have the strength and the power to protect itself and have only that nourishes which is good. So the mind which has become trained in meditation is a mind that has gained strength. And that strength then can be used so that it does get only that fed to it which will be healthy, nourishing. Such a mind becomes stronger and purer. Then the exercise that the body needs. Well, the mind gets exercise by thinking, but it's not the kind of exercise it really needs because we've been thinking ever since we were that small. And the mind is constantly busy doing that. And it thinks and evaluates. What it needs is the kind of exercise that we can compare to weightlifting. If we do weightlifting with the body, we will get muscles in the arms. At first, it's going to be very difficult to lift anything. But as we do it more often, the muscles will arise. The same is here. When we get the mind to stay in one spot, where it is actually attentive to the meditation subject, it gets muscles. Because it's constantly being pulled back to stay still. It's constantly being told, to stand there and not move. That's the kind of strength then, the muscles in the mind that arises from that kind of exercise. It's not the thinking process that gives it the strength. It's the concentration process. Everybody thinks, and according to Lord Buddha, we're all thinking wrong. Because we're all thinking from an ego-deluded viewpoint. And then we need a rest. 
and everybody will agree on that. Everybody needs a rest. But what we're doing when we get a rest is we put the body somewhere where there's a bit of rest. We might go into the mountains with this body and say, oh, well, I'm having a wonderful rest in the mountains, cooler, and I don't have to work in my work, and it's a rest. And well, who's getting a rest? The body's getting a rest. The mind is going on the same as before. Instead of thinking about the work, it's thinking about something else. Maybe it's thinking about the scenery, which isn't quite as uh, exhausting as thinking about the work, but it's still thinking. It's not getting a rest. And this mind has been thinking, thinking, thinking all day long, ever since we came around this time, many lifetimes before, and dreaming, dreaming, dreaming at night. It must never get one moment rest. The rest that the body needs to be strong again next morning is exactly what the mind needs. It is a complete cut-off from everything else. And cutting the body off doesn't do it. It has to be the mind that gets cut off. So that rest is only available, only in meditation. There's no other place that rest is available. And it comes to the point where the concentration is strong enough to eliminate thinking. Now, I would like to elaborate on that because it's often, many times, misunderstood very short sentence. To stop thinking does not mean that the mind becomes a blank. A blank mind is a vegetable mind. That's not what we're after. When the mind stops thinking, it starts experiencing. It starts experiencing its own purity. Ramana Maharshi, who was a sage in southern India, compared it with a very interesting simile. He said, the mind is like a white movie screen on which a constant movie is being run. And because we don't have any intermission, we have forgotten that this movie can only be run because there's a white screen behind it. We only see the movie. And not only that, we also believe the movie. Now, don't think that he means that the mind is like a white screen, but what he means is this. The movie that's being run is our thinking. And because we don't stop, we, have no, we don't have any intermissions in that thinking process, constant movie going. We don't realize that there's something else possible. We can't imagine that there's something behind all that thinking, which is entirely different, which is peaceful and restful, and which is completely at ease and doesn't have any of the connotation of all this thinking. So this comes about when our concentration has come to a point where we can stay on our meditation subject for a little while. The little while is arbitrary, it depends. Some people have a knack for doing this, and some people don't. I presume this is a, a result of karma, how much one has done in the past. Some people seem to get to, this, to meditation, and it takes them no time at all, and they become very concentrated and have very uh, good ability to do this. Other people, it takes them a long time, so that's impossible to forecast this. The only thing that is necessary is patience and determination and the full understanding that without this one isn't leading a full life because one only knows one part of one's mind. One knows the thinking part. That's the only part one knows and one has until that moment thought also, another thought, that that thinking part of the mind is all that's needed. The better one can think, obviously, the better one can do one's job, 
and the better everything is going to run. But if one has been around long enough in this life, one finally comes to the conclusion that isn't so. It does not give complete fulfillment. There is another part of one's mind, the more important part, the much more important part, which we have to get at through the meditation process, which is that part where the thinking stops completely, the experiencing starts, and one starts to experience that which is a simile, the white movie screen, please don't take that uh, literally, one starts experiencing the one's mind's purity without the thinking, which brings about a sense of bliss and peacefulness which is totally unavailable in all worldly conditions. It just isn't there. It can't be there because worldly conditions are brought about with the thinking process. I'm going to get this, I'm not going to get that, I'm going to do it this way, I'm not going to do it that way, I'm going to have these people around, I want to... This is a thinking process. So the bliss and the peace and the happiness that is available through the non-thinking, the experiencing process cannot be had in the world, in the worldly condition. We are in the world, we're not in the worldly condition. But it is certainly available through concentration. And it is, according to Lord Buddha's words, an absolute essential to gain insight. And this is a very important aspect, and I'd like you to make sure that I explain it in such a way that you are quite sure what I'm saying, and if you're not, please ask me afterwards. There are many meditation techniques, and all they are techniques. They are like a hook to hang your head on. They're like a hook to hang your mind on. That's all they are. They make absolutely no difference which way they are, if they are suitable to you. But there are only two directions in meditation, and this is the important part of it. There's calm and insight. Now what I've been talking about, when the mind experiences its own purity, when it knows bliss and peace and happiness, this is the way to calm. This is the way of tranquility, samatha, or samasamadhi. This is the way where the mind knows itself to be a totally different, of a totally different quality. And at that time, when it gets this rest, it then emerges from that with power and strength. Just like the body that's had a rest in the bed all night, next morning it emerges with some new strength and it can get going again. And if we keep on not going to bed for several nights in a row, we're going to be in a very uh, debilitated condition. Our condition is going to be very poor, our physical and with it our mental condition. So the mind emerges from this concentration with being full of strength and then it can gain insight. And because a mind, an ordinary mind, that hasn't had this different experience and different qualitative uh, connotation in itself, cannot delve into the depth of the extraordinary teaching that Lord Buddha gave. This teaching of anatta is unique in the in humanity. There's never been a teaching like that. And it's the one way of getting out of all dukkha. Be the calm meditation, while it gives bliss and happiness, is finished when one comes out. And although one runs around with the understanding that one can get back into it anytime one wants to, 
which gives a great deal of security and peacefulness, it still doesn't bring any wisdom. It is like when you work all day and you know that after you finish working, you can go to your home, close the door, and you don't have to talk to anybody. It's uh, uh, the body can rest there. This is what you know then about the mind. When you sit down in meditation, you know the mind has found a home. It doesn't have to talk to anybody, no thoughts, doesn't have to talk to anybody. It can just rest there. And it's totally at ease and at peace. And so with that knowledge, one goes around also in daily living with the security of knowing I can go home when I wish to. But the office, we had to work all day and didn't have a home to go to in the evening. Well, the mind doesn't have that home. The mind keeps on thinking, well, even though the body is sitting down having its cup of tea, the mind goes on and on and on and on. But that's not enough. That's not all of it. Because all that does, it gives great comfort and it gives the harmony in oneself. But Lord Buddha's teaching goes towards vipassana or panya, inside wisdom. And the wisdom arises through the ability of the mind to have that new strength, to have become purified, to have exercised, to gain muscles, and to have that new strength to its rest. And then, because the mind is happy, it's totally at ease and happy, it's perfectly willing to accept the premise that there's nobody there. A mind which isn't happy, completely and utterly, totally contented, and doesn't want anything anymore, is unable to accept that premise more than intellectually. If we've read enough books, we know, and not that there's nobody there. But that's an intellectual understanding. But the mind that is completely at ease and happy is the mind that doesn't want anything anymore. It's totally able and quite willing to accept this as a given fact. And then, when it is willing to accept it as a given fact, it can also try and begin to live accordingly. So only the mind which has become happy is the mind which is able to accept the key lakanas, the three uh, characteristics, namely anicca dukkha All other minds will constantly refute it. They'll always put that little but at the end. All right, I'm not doing the best I can right now, but when the children are married, when I retire, when the weather gets better, when the political situation improves, when the prices go down, whatever it may be, all those whens and ifs, the mind will always put that at the end. But the mind which has become totally contented and satisfied won't do that because it doesn't want anything anymore. It says, right, this is it. That's exactly the way it is. So we need the calm in order to gain the insight. Now, obviously, one doesn't get complete calm right away, nor does one get complete insight. This is quite obvious. One gonna get little snatches of it. But don't you see that a little snatch is better than nothing? And in um, Anguttara Nikaya, Sariputta gives a discourse where he says that everybody who has ever proclaimed enlightenment to him has done it in one of three ways, namely either by going through calm to insight, by going through insight to calm, or doing it in pairs. And what we're going to do here together is going to do it in pairs. We're going to do calm and insight together. 
and this is the best way I have found to do it because nobody can gain complete calm and nobody can gain complete insight just by trying but we can all gain a little bit of each and they help each other little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm so that's now from the theory to the practice this is an overview of why it's not only important it's absolutely essential to meditate because we're missing out on the better half of our life if we don't do it we are missing out on the experience which brings with it that kind of understanding which sees this world as containing dukkha trying to do the best one can but not the most important aspect of our life as long as this is the most important aspect we're only always going to be in some sort of turmoil because nobody ever gets everything they want it's impossible and wanting is the first and second noble truth wanting is the only cause for dukkha and it doesn't matter what we want whatever it is we want it's dukkha so when we look at this using calm and insight in pairs we do it this way we use the breath as our meditation subject now the breath is the most common and the most widely used meditation subject it has many advantages there are many other meditation subjects and most of them are equally good but this one has many advantages first of all we always have it with us we don't have to think about now where did i leave it or what did i forget the word that i was supposed to use it's always there breath is part of life and so we are paying attention to life also it is the only uh, physical function which is autonomous but also voluntary we can hold our breath so we have a very distinct physical function there so if we sometimes we need to make take a deep breath we can do it other times we just watch the breath as it goes and most importantly more important than those two is the fact that breath and mind are completely connected when we are excited upset in a hurry the breath goes past when we are totally calm and at ease the breath goes to the point of what we consider disappearance in the meditation but it doesn't because if it were to disappear we disappear with it but it goes so it comes becomes so fine because the mind is so finely tuned at that time that from that moment comes the next moment which is the absorption I teach the Anapanasati method but any one of you who have done the rise and fall of the abdomen are welcome to keep on using that it's no use changing horses in midstream the Anapanasati method is the method where we watch the breath at the nostrils we watch the breath as it goes in and out of the nostrils and because the breath is wind it also creates a feeling at the nostrils and that feeling helps us to keep our attention there this is a very fine very small point and therefore extremely helpful to become one pointed this is my reason for not teaching the rise and fall of the abdomen because i find that area is too large the mind is supposed to go together one pointed but it is also a method by which one can become concentrated now 
when one hasn't done any meditation before, it is almost impossible to stay on this fine point. So there are many ways we can help ourselves. First way is to use a word. And one of the words which are often used and are very useful is the word Buddha, to the Buddha. Bud on the in-breath, ho on the out. Now if you don't like that word, you can use another one. It doesn't matter. The words are only uh, a device, a device to help you to stay with what you're doing. The word peace, a lot of people like that word, you use the word peace, it helps them to stay with the breath, all right? Peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. Any word will be fine. If you don't want to use a word, you can count. Some people who have mathematical type of minds like the counting. Now, you count one on the in-breath, one on the out-breath, two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. You do not do less than five and you don't do more than ten. When you do more than ten, it becomes uh, mechanical and you get involved in the numbers. You always have to start again with the one. If you do less than five, there's too much change going on. But one of the things I like to recommend, and you can try this, is <clears throat> when you count, and, and let's say at number two, the mind starts running off into somewhere else, you start again at one. It doesn't matter how many times. Nobody's going to sit there and count it for you, only you know. And that is an excellent way of getting to know one's own mind. One has a totally wrong viewpoint about one's own mind until one starts meditating. One can see that one has been thinking very cleverly, one has been able to do all the things that are necessary to be done, one can be more able and efficient than other people. All these things are possible, and yet the mind will not stay in one spot. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like a child. We tell a small child to sit quietly now and don't move. A child can't do it. It gets up and it looks at this and it looks at that or it falls asleep or it does something. The same is with our mind. An untrained mind is like a child. It runs all over the place. Or sometimes it's compared to a monkey. In the canon you find it compared to a monkey. It's jumping from treetop to treetop. Always looking for a better banana. So then, when the numbers, words, or following the breath as far in as you can find it. Don't make the breath anything special. Only if you're in the beginning, I'll say that again afterwards, if you can't find it at all, you take a deep breath. But you just follow the breath as far in as you're aware of the breath and as far out. You can do that. Now that is not at this point, it's in and out. Now you have different ways of doing that. Pick one, try it out. If, you, if the mind is able to do something with it, stick with it. If the mind says, no, I can't do this, this is terrible, then try another one. But try to stick with it, give it a good chance, right? Counting words or following as fine and as far as possible or actually staying right there, whichever appeals to you. One also has a certain attraction to some way of doing it. Now, what's going to happen is this. Instead of the mind doing exactly as you tell it to do, because now you come here to meditate, so you're going to tell the mind, now come on, meditate, now you're still on the breath. But it won't do it. It will start thinking about what you did just before you came here. It will start thinking about what you're going to do as soon as you leave here. 
it is going to start thinking about all sorts of things that have an association in your mind with meditation, like maybe last Koya day or uh, uh, the uh, death anniversary of your mother or something like that. It will think about anything at all except about the breath. So what you need to do at that time is to catch it. Become an objective observer. Instead of, now in the beginning you'll be involved with that thinking until the mind all of a sudden says, now wait a minute, I came here to meditate, what's all this thinking? That is the moment when you can become your own objective observer and you watch it and say, oh, this thought is about the past. And that's the moment you can drop it and get back to the present. And the next thought might be about the future. And again, you will see past and future useless. I'm going back to the moment. And again, you can drop it. Or you will find that you have a thought of rejection. What's all this meditation about? It's silly. I'm going to go home and then listen to the radio. This is nonsense. Rejection. Right? So you look at it and you see, you see the rejection in the mind. So you say, ah, rejection. Right? Or you're going to find in the mind something as, I wonder what they're going to serve for lunch. Ah, this is a liking. Right? Green? Okay. Drop it. Right? It's only, it's only early morning. I don't have to think about lunch now. Drop it. Finish. Right? So that way, this is insight. This is the use of the meditation for insight which is giving you an insight into your own mind. I'm only giving you a few examples. You might have much more exalted thoughts than that, but you will find you have some very funny ones too. And then you can laugh at them also. This is very interesting to get this insight into oneself. The Lord Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monk, lies in this fathom long body, body and mind, one fathom long. The whole thing can be seen in this. It's all in there. So as we find, get an insight into our own thinking process, we get an insight into what's really going on in the human realm. Because as I'm giving you these examples, you can deduce from that that everybody's like that. Everybody is having that. So this is the human realm. Now you get, you get to know that you're thinking about the past. You get to know that you're thinking about the future. And you already know that this is useless. You have to think about the present in order to meditate. So you learn to drop and get back to the breath. Now this learning to drop is going to be one of the most important things that one can learn through meditation to use in daily living. Because very often in daily living we come across a situation where somebody says something and we think, oh, this horrible person, this is dreadful. And then we keep on thinking about what we should have answered and how we're going to get back at that person and that we're never going to talk to them again and it's going to get up into such a big thing that in the end we're enemies for life. Instead of they say something and we've learned to drop. We hear it and we say, drop, finish, all done, all done with. So dropping that which is not useful, now at the moment, all thoughts are not useful because we want to get calm. So we learn to drop all thoughts. But in daily living, we want to drop those which are unworthy. And it's the same process. You mustn't think that dropping is something which is done sort of um, by giving in. Dropping is an activity in the mind. You have to actively drop the thought. It's an active doing of the mind and getting back to the breath. So this is a very important part of the meditation. 
the insight into one's own thinking process is a very important part of the meditation. And then there will be something else which is equally important. And that is, you'll have feelings arise. Feelings of, most likely, 99% of the time, this from the sitting position, because not being used to it. And even when one's used to it for years, there's still discomfort arises also. Now, discomfort, physical discomfort, is part of human life. Birth is dukkha, decay is dukkha, disease is dukkha, and death is dukkha. These are the words of the Buddha. And you, as doctors especially, must know what this body is prone to. Nothing but unhappiness. So here, you're going to experience it in a situation that you can actually, with a mind, learn to control. What is going to happen is that you're going to have unpleasant feelings. Let's say the right knee starts hurting, just for an example, right? So the instinctive reaction to that is, and you'll find that in yourself, and you'll watch it, it'll be very interesting, is to move. Get, get away from this discomfort. Now, instead of doing that instinctively, do something else. You can actually experience what is called the Paticca Samuttara, the 12 point dependent origination in yourself. And only then does it make any sense. Usually it's a philosophical treatise. But when you experience it in yourself, you'll find it's most interesting. Namely, what's happening is this. There is touch contact. We have six senses and they're making contact, right? Now, here this is touch contact. Let's say the right knee hurts. Touch contact is the first thing that arises. Now, from contact comes feeling. There is absolutely no way out. It always comes feeling, whether arahant or not arahant, whether the totally untrained person, every contact creates feeling. Now, the feeling immediately creates craving, which means that if it's a pleasant feeling, we want to keep it. And if it's an unpleasant feeling, we want to get rid of it. This is the only point in the 12-point origination which brings us from birth to death, from birth to death, and ever never-ending circle, where we can cut out. Namely, when that feeling becomes unpleasant, which in this case I'm talking about an unpleasant feeling, we can see how the mind reacts and says, I don't like it, I want to get rid of it, this is awful. This is very painful. And the first thing that the mind says is, it gives it a name. It says pain, which is a perception, the sanya. And with that pain perception, we immediately have a dislike to it. And we want to get away from it. Now, obviously, someone who hasn't trained uh, can't sit in one position for a long time. I'm not trying to say that that's what you need to do. But what I'm saying what you need to do is to recognize the process which is happening in the mind because it's the most revealing thing that can happen because it helps one eventually to let go of one's cravings and wanting and be contented with what one is and what one has. And that makes life so much easier. So here you have a, such a situation arising which is so simple and gives you the whole gamut of that experience of our cravings of our cravings of, that goes both ways, no? Craving goes the way of wanting the pleasant and resisting the unpleasant. Here we don't want the unpleasant. So the instinct is immediately to move. Don't. 
watch the mind work at work. Watch it and say, aha, touch contact, feeling has arisen, it's unpleasant, I don't like it, I'm calling it pain, I don't like it, I want to get rid of it. And then of course the mind gives all sort of rationalization, it's very bad for me, the blood circulation is going to stop and uh, you can't sit like that for such a long time and uh, I can't do it. None of this is necessary. All you have to see is the next step after that, which is the feeling has arisen without me wanting it without me doing anything about it, just as a rhythm through contact. So, why am I calling it mind? Am I able to detach from it for a moment? Am I going to leave that unpleasant feeling over there and just get back to the breath? And you will be able to do that for a moment or two. And again, try it again. It's an extremely revealing experience. It's something quite different from what we usually do. Because we get a headache, we run for a Panadol, no? So here, we don't run for the Panadol, we don't run for the uh, quick change. What we do is, we look at it and say, this is not mine. And this body, Lord Buddha said not that the body gets cancer, Lord Buddha said the body is a cancer. And he used the word cancer. The body is a cancer, not that it gets cancer. The body is a misery, and this body always makes misery no matter what we do with it. Even at night, you can buy the most expensive mattress, you can have earplugs in your ears, and still the body moves. It can't lie still. Because now we know that we are living in a state of delusion. Lord Buddha said that our delusion is our belief in our own personality, that we are a person, somebody, that this is a, there's a me and mine delusion. And we also know that there is a state free of that, called Nibbana. And we also know that we are having Dukkha. We know we have, sometimes we have it and other times we don't have it so much and then it comes back again. And we also know that Nibbana is supposedly a state without Dukkha. But that's about all we know about these things. We don't have a deep understanding of it because we haven't experienced it. First of all, we have not experienced the Nibbanic state. So we can only infer from the words that Lord Buddha spoke that such a state exists. We have experienced our own Dukkha state and uh, but we don't even have experienced this delusion state. Because if we knew that this was a delusion, we could more easily work with it to give it up. We're taking this delusion for granted. So what we need to look at is this. We need to see how we can do something about it so that we have a deeper penetration into the, that's what Lord Buddha said. We are living in a state of relative reality. To us it seems to be that there are all these different people and different animals and different uh, uh, growth trees and bushes and different situations and out of all that, stars and moon and sun, out of all that there's one person, that's me, and that's observing all that. Now this is what we are living in. And that's real for us, for everybody. But it's very relative. 
because obviously everybody else experiences something different. They experience it from their standpoint and seeing it in a different way. Some person might be interested in looking at the stars. Another person might only want to go in the forest. Another person might think people are very pleasant and want to be with people. Other people don't want people. They want to go around and, uh, by themselves. Everybody has their own reality to live in, so it's got to be relative. It can't be absolute. Now, it's called a relative reality because it's only relatively true. It's only true for each person separately. But further than that, there is an absolute reality which has absolute truth and which is true for everyone. And to see that absolute reality means to gain insight. And Nibbana means to have gained complete insight. The calm states of meditation, which I have described earlier this morning, are only a means. They are not the end in themselves. They are a means for quietening the mind, for making the mind happy and peaceful, so that this deep insight can be obtained. This deep insight is not something that we can deliberately acquire. We can certainly think about it, but our thinking process is extremely limited. We don't have the necessary equipment unless the mind has become totally quiet to delve into this depth because it goes against our brain. It does not answer our wishes. Our wishes are for self-protection. And this absolute reality goes in a different direction. So only the mind which is completely quiet and calm will actually undertake such a delving into the depth of the truth. I was talking about letting go of thinking in the meditation. And this is absolutely essential, but please don't think that we let go of our mind capacity in order to gain insight. On the contrary, insight exists in the mind. Nibbana is enlightenment in the mind liberation, freedom from dukkha, all that is in the mind. But we need a mind which has been trained, which has been cultivated in a way which one can only do through the meditative process. The mind's quality which we can gain through the meditative process is the necessary, that calm, samatha is necessary in order to have the capacity to let go. This whole spiritual task, this whole process, is not of getting anything. Although we say uh, attaining enlightenment or gaining insight, this is not a very correct way of describing it. What is necessary is letting go. The whole thing hinges on the fact that we are hanging on to that which we think is important. Lord Buddha said like this. He said, we are trying to make permanent 
everything that's impermanent. And we think of that which is dukkha as sukha. And we think of that which is sukha as dukkha. We've got it all upside down. And this is our relative reality. And in that relative reality, we are completely correct. And the, the reason also, not only is it our hanging on that makes it so difficult, the reason for the difficulty is also that everybody else is doing it. Everybody around us is doing exactly the same thing. So to remove oneself within one's mind from such mind state makes it very, very difficult because we are conditioned and also within that conditioning we are dependent on, upon other people's goodwill. So we try to comply with preconceived notions that we have. All this goes against the possibility of liberation. The only way that we can do it is, we, is when we become an independent thinker. We have to be a totally independent thinker and think it all out for ourselves. You see, Lord Buddha thought it out for us, but he said about himself, I'm only the shore of the way. I'm only pointing in a certain direction. Everybody got to think it out for themselves again. And this is where the difficulty lies. The ease lies in the fact that we have a direction. It makes it much easier. If we had to think it all out for ourselves, we'd never make it because we haven't got that kind of mind. But with being shown the direction, it's still difficult enough. So we have to be independent in our thinking. And with that independence, with that, we can get a new angle on reality. And we can look upon all those things that we try to have as permanent and see whether they really are permanent. Now, in our meditation practice, we can see quite clearly that the breath is impermanent. One goes in there, then it goes out, then another one in, then another one out. We know very well that our heartbeat is very impermanent. We know very well that there's a constant change in our cellular system. Our cells are constantly deteriorating and coming back together again. We're not aware of that because we don't have enough penetration yet to realize that this is really happening. But because it is a fact that it's happening, you can from that already deduce that with complete concentration, one can actually become aware of this fact without any laboratory assistance. The Buddha was aware by himself of the fact that there's a constant change, that there's a constant coming together and falling apart. And he talked about this. And now, in the last 12 or 15 years, our scientists have come up with this totally, what they thought, new system of looking at the universe and have come out with this great pronouncement that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. Everything are energy particles that come together and fall apart again. And they have even proved that in a laboratory experiment in a bubble chamber in America where they have been able to see it 
that this is actually so. There is, there aren't any molecules, there aren't any atomic uh, particles at all, even smaller than that, energy particles that come together and fall apart. Not a single solid building block in the whole universe. Well, Buddha said that two and a half thousand years ago, in other words, but like that. These fellows now know the same. We do too. But Lord Buddha was, became enlightened, and they didn't. Now, what was the difference? The difference was that Lord Buddha experienced this in himself, that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe, that this thing here, which looks so solid, is constantly coming together and falling apart. And the scientists, who finally, two and a half thousand years later, said exactly the same thing, thought it was there, not here. They thought it was there, everything around them, except themselves. Now this is such an um, enormous thinking error that one wonders why they haven't come to that conclusion themselves. And the interesting part of it is also that there are some scientists now who have actually realized that there must be something in that which concerns themselves and have tried to, in books, bring together their own scientific understanding with the religions that they know. And they are groping there around trying to bring the two together. Nothing could be simpler from a Buddhist standpoint because Lord Buddha said, only Anicca, nothing remains. It's all falling apart. And he called these energy particles he gave them even a name, and uh, he talked about them at uh, length because he was able, through his enormous concentration, to be aware of it. Now, our um, idea about ourselves is that there is a solid body. And we also have the idea that this is solid and this is solid and all the things around us are solid. And because we have this idea, we want to keep it solid. The way it is, it seems to give us some security. This is the way it is, and we want to keep it that way. And yet we all know, without a shadow of a doubt, that none of these bodies are going to be kept. They're all going to fall apart completely, never to arise again. So we are in a dilemma. And the dilemma which produces nothing but dukkha. We are in the dilemma of trying to make permanent what is so obviously impermanent. And it isn't only bodies, which is of course the greatest uh, source of problems. It's also things. Things fall apart. Things go, uh, uh, are no longer usable. And that's the same there. And yet, we know underneath it all that this is the truth. And yet, we don't want to admit it it seems to bring insecurity into our lives. The exact opposite is true. Because we are trying to make something happen which cannot happen, we are very insecure. If we are trying to make something happen which is totally impossible, we become more and more frustrated. We have more and more dukkha. It's like a small child that wants to make a tower out of building blocks. And it's too small yet, it doesn't have the necessary dexterity to make this power. So 
So it again and again tries to put these things on top of each other. I'm sure you have seen kids do that. And again and again the whole thing falls apart and the end the kid starts screaming because it's totally frustrated by trying to do something which it can't do. We are in exactly the same position. We are trying to do something which we can't do. It's against the law of nature. Dhamma can be translated as the law of nature. We are trying to keep together what will obviously fall apart. Now, within our own bodies, we know very well, and I'm sure you know it very, very well, that every seven years, all the cells in the body are renewed. Well, how? I learned this in school when I was about 10 years old. And I looked at the teacher and I thought, what? These cells can't be falling out of my body and I'm getting a whole new lot. I must have already a new lot. I passed seven years of age. Now, when I'm going to be 14, I'll have another lot. How is this happening? So it was a total mystery to me until it finally dawned on me when I was much older what was really happening, that these things are falling apart and coming back together until after seven years, all of them have done it. But of course, there is no way of knowing that within ourselves because we are not paying enough attention. If we were to pay full attention to it, we would become aware of that. And when we would become aware of that, without just knowing it, we know it out of a textbook. But when we become aware of it, fully aware of it, we would have an entirely different view of ourselves. You can compare this to a river. The river has the same name from beginning to end. And let's say you want to go to the river and you want to find out what is actually the essence. What is this river? So you're really interested in this river. So you go to this river and you take a bucket and you dip it into the river and take out this bucket and put it on the side on the bank and you say to your friend, now look, now I've got the river here. Now we can really find out what it is. The friend's going to say, what nonsense? This is a bucket of water. This is not the river. It's only a river while it flows. The minute you take it, take it out, you haven't got a river. You've got a bucket of water. The minute it stops flowing, you've got an inland sea. The minute we stop flowing, you've got a pause and not a person. This thing has to flow. Everything changes. The thoughts, the feelings, everything changes within us. Our body, moment by moment, it, it deteriorates, it resurrects, it deteriorates, it resurrects, grows older every second, and it's going nearer and nearer, nearer to the death moment. So there's a complete flow. The minute you stop that flow, you haven't got a person. You can say whatever you might have. You might have a, 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 a specimen, you might have a, a corpse, you might have anything, but you don't have a person anymore. So we are a complete flow. And we try to counteract that. We don't believe it. We have a, an intellectual understanding of it, obviously. But we don't like it. We don't like that idea. It diminishes the ego within us. This ego which we have built up out of the idea that we own something. Now just imagine for a moment, can you imagine for just a moment that you are one second before death? I mean, everybody's going to be there, no? So what do we own at that moment? That next moment we own nothing. Absolutely nothing. We don't own the thoughts, the feelings, the body, the people, the house, the nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
So we own at this moment, while we are still alive, that second before that death moment, we own everything. We own the people, they're my, my, my family, we own the house, my house, we own the bank account, we own the feelings, we own the thoughts, we own the body. And one second later we own nothing. So there must be something wrong there somewhere. And what is wrong is our viewpoint. That's all that's wrong, the viewpoint. And the viewpoint creates all the dukkha. And this is what Lord Buddha tried to show us, that we're looking at everything in the wrong way. And the right way, to look at it in the right way, necessitates the training of the mind that has become so one-pointed, so sharp, that it can see that. Now, there are three doorways to liberation. The doorway through Anicca, through that which is completely changing, that's what I've just talked about. And that's called the timeless liberation. And that means that we realize that there is nothing in the whole of the universe which has any real significance. It's all flowing and moving, like a river. Now, people hear that. They think this is um, uh, depressing. That is, uh, one loses one's uh, interest in everything because there's nothing of any significance. But on the contrary, it's liberating, it's freeing. Because there's nothing that one has to run after. Everything is as it is anyway. It already is. It's already flowing. One doesn't have to spend one's time, one's energy, one's life trying to get something. Totally unnecessary. It's all there the way it is already. And with that, one is freed and liberated from this whole um, conglomeration of wanting and wishing, of trying to get and become. And when we see that everything is constantly moving and changing with it, we also see, obviously, that there's nothing in the universe that can bring total fulfillment because it's always changing. And because it's always changing, it can't stay fulfilling. Now, let's say we got what we wanted, say we've got a uh, promotion, we've got the fame, uh, our new book is being published, uh, everybody loves us. Well, it's not going to stay like that, is it? The new book's going to be an old book, the promotion's going to be all finished already, and doubtlessly somebody going to come along who's not going to agree with us. Everybody has that uh, opportunity. So these things don't remain. And even though there may not be the deeper, uh, the dukkha, of grief and bereavement in one's life at this stage. But that is not what Lord Buddha said was dukkha only. That is also dukkha, but not only that. This constant change is the dukkha, because nothing can be grasped. And we are constantly trying to grasp it. But constantly trying to hang on to something, something to make it solid. Now, the, when we see that this is not satisfactory, then the liberation is called the wishless liberation, which means that we no longer wish, that we have seen that there's nothing to wish for. And it all leads to the essence, which is the understanding of anatta, which means that there we have seen the doorway which leads to the void 
liberation. Now, void, that word, is constantly misunderstood. It doesn't mean that there's nothing. It just means that there's nothing anywhere which has a solid substance. Just like these energy particles. These energy particles that come together and fall apart, there is no substance within them. And if you can translate those energy particles into yourself, this is it, me, I'm that, then you can't find anything within there which is solid. Now all these are end products of meditation. The reason I'm talking about it is the fact that we must never confuse calm and insight. Calm is the means, insight is the goal. Calm is that what we do with the mind in order to get a mind which is already satisfied, contented and happy and therefore quite willing to look at these absolute truths, this absolute reality which takes away the ego delusion. To take away the ego delusion is a very difficult thing. You know that if you talk to somebody and you sort of um, belittle them, well, they'll be very irate, they'll be very angry, and uh, you'll probably have an enemy forever, because the ego got there. If you say to them, ah, oh, you don't ever do these things right, huh? Terrible. Because their ego is being attacked. Attacking somebody's ego is the worst thing one can do. And here, what we have in Lord Buddha's dispensation, we don't have the attack of the ego. What we have is that we have to see the delusion of the ego. That the whole thing is a complete delusion. That we are operating with something which is like a magician's uh, play. We are on stage like a magician trying to show something which he's showing us as if it was real. So when, when the mind has had the opportunity through meditation to become calm and concentrated. It doesn't worry so much about everybody else being in total accord with them and uh, uh, supporting and bolstering their ego. So that mind is quite willing to look at such a reality as that the energy particles are completely coming together and falling apart without a substance and saying, I said, it's possible that that is me too because that kind of mind is already satisfied. And then, gaining that kind of state of calmness makes it possible to investigate the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. And only with that investigation and with that understanding then comes about a glimpse of liberation. The minute one is liberated from the self-delusion, one is liberated from all dukkha. That's the only way to get out of Dukkha. Because as long as there's somebody there, there's always somebody liable to have Dukkha. The minute there's nobody there, there's nobody having Dukkha. It's as simple as that. But to get there isn't all that simple. And we need the calmness in the meditation in order to be able to even investigate these premises. Because they are going so much against that, what we've been trying to do so many lifetimes. What we've been trying to do so many lifetimes is to bolster this person. And we're looking for other people who support our ego. Those people who say to us, you're a very fine person, you're a wonderful person, you're very clever, um, you're very nice, I like to be with you. These people we like. 
because they support our ego delusion. But those people who might say to us, oh, what you're talking about, I'm not interested in, and I don't care about these things, and why don't you think of something better to say? Those people we wouldn't want anything to do with because they're making our ego feel very small. Everything that we own, no matter what it is, bolsters our ego delusion. If we have more money, we think we are more. We are more of a person. And yet this money is a number. These are numbers. It's a number scale. Nothing else. They're just numbers. But it gives us this delusion of being more of a person because we've got more around us. Having more people around us gives us a delusion of being more. Whatever we own gives us this delusion of being more. That's why we are so determined to own our feelings and thoughts. They're mine. And may they be ever so unpleasant, they're still mine. Even when one has a great deal of pain, painful things, one still has that idea of mine. I was told a story by a doctor which you might find interesting, and I find it so, I find it extremely significant. This doctor was in Australia, and uh, he had uh, a cancer patient who was obviously going to die within the next hour. He was in a terminal case, and he was in a hardly any uh, life death. But this man had been given so much painkillers that even any dose that he was given didn't work anymore. He had become more or less immune to these ordinary doses. And he was in so much pain that the nurses couldn't stand it. They went away. <laughs> they just couldn't handle it. So the doctor thought, well, this is terrible. I think I might, maybe if I can give that man a little higher dose, uh, it may relieve the pain, but it may also terminate life. So he went to this patient and told him that. And the patient said, but doctor, you're not going to deprive me of my life. Of course he didn't. <laughs> but he was in such pain that the nurses couldn't handle this to watch this. And the man himself was given the choice of this or that. And yet, he was that was him, that was his life, his pain, his feeling. And this is the typical way that we are hanging on even to our own dukkha. At least it's mine. I own it. So we even hang on to our own dukkha. We may be angry at the person and that's a lot of dukkha for ourselves. And yet we don't give it up because it's mine, my feeling. Now this we do because of that idea that there's somebody there. And this idea of making things permanent. And this idea of making things permanent creates all the problems. These are our problems that we see in the world. Everybody wants to own, to have, to be, to become. And with that, we have nothing but problem in the world because everybody wants something. And then another person wants the same thing. And then they fight with each other. Now, this is also about our opinions. We have opinions. And we own these opinions. And then let somebody else come along and debate them and say, no, no, it's all wrong. So we're having a war on immediately between two people. But that's not the worst of it. We also have a war on inside of ourselves. And that is where the lack of peace comes from. Because we are constantly at war with ourselves. With that, what we know to be true, and that, 
what we think is more expedient to bolster our evolution. So the goal in the Buddhist meditation is the insight into impermanence. You can see it's the insight into impermanence, dukkha and non-self. But impermanence is the one which most people choose to look into because you can't debate it. Dukkha is easily debatable. People who haven't uh, tried to see the truth of things very much, they can say that, um, well, my life's all right, I'm okay. I'm sure you've heard people say that or you might have said it yourself. Well, what do you mean, Dukkha? I'm okay, everything's going fine for me. It's all right, you know, and you say, because things niggling, niggling here, but altogether everything is fine, right? And the non-self that goes so much against our brain that it's very difficult because the answer to that one is very often is, well, if there's nobody there, what am I trying to sit here for and meditate? What's the use of that? And who's trying to make good karma if there's nobody there? What's the use of that? So people have that kind of uh, refutation against Dukkha and against Anatta. But against Anicca, nobody's got anything to say. Nobody debates on that. You can ask anybody. You can ask anybody on the street in anywhere, not in, in a Buddhist country, anywhere. Ask them, say, uh, is everything impermanent? And they'll say, yes, of course everything is impermanent, and they'll keep on going. Everybody agrees, and nobody does anything about it. And yet, it is the basic mistake, the basic fault in our thinking, that we're trying to hang on to grab a, a tight hold on that which we think we can own. And this tight hold makes it impossible to transcend, to go beyond. See, if I hang on to this cushion here, have a tight hold on this, I can't get out the door. I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck right here with this cushion. I'm hanging on. And this is what our meditation will do for us. That because we can gain different states of consciousness in meditation, different states of awareness, we become aware of the fact that the way we've been thinking until now and the way we've been experiencing until now is not necessarily the only way that there is. In fact, it may be a very limited way. And because of that, we have the ability and capacity to investigate and the willingness to look at it in a very profound way and also the ability to do it. Not only the willingness, but the ability because the mind which has a lot of distracting thoughts, cannot penetrate. It is as if you were trying to learn something by heart and all the time the mind is thinking of something. You can't ever remember, it's impossible. So the penetration into that needs the concentrated mind. So our states in meditation, when you have been able to stay on the breath for some time, I mentioned earlier that the breath will then become so faint and fine that you may think it's gone. Now, if that should happen, that is the time to switch your attention to the feeling in the body. That is the next stage after the breath. But don't switch until there is that full attention where the breath has become so faint that you can hardly find it. You can, but you can hardly find it. And when you can hardly find it, then you go to the feelings in the body. 
And as the feelings in the body are very pleasant at that time, you experience in the first time, the first instance of an altered consciousness. This is the first instance of altered consciousness. There are many ways of having altered consciousness. This is the only secure and safe way, meditation. There are ways of having altered consciousness through chemical uh, methods, which are first of all unsafe and secondly useless because they cannot be uh, repeated. This one can be repeated as often as you wish. And it is the first entrance into an altered state of consciousness. This altered state of consciousness then uh, grows from there, goes on from there, to the state where we become totally unaware of having a body and then totally unaware of having a separate mind, a separate consciousness. And all these states are conducive to understanding this phenomena that there's nothing in the universe except energy particles. Now, if you can think about that for a moment, most people get frightened by it. Most people get, get absolutely frightened by that fact. There's nothing except energy particles. Look at it. All of us are energy particles. Most people don't want to handle that one. They say, oh, well, that's all right for the scientists and do their own thing again. Or maybe that's all right for the enlightened people. But it's the truth. And this is what is necessary to look the truth in the face. And for that, we need to meditate. Because when we meditate, the mind can do it. And in fact, the mind is delighted to do it. It enjoys doing it. Because it has an altered state of consciousness, an altered state of awareness. And then this kind of understanding is something which is a, a follow-up from that, an understanding that comes through that altered state. So as you meditate and you get your meditation to the point where you can stay on the breath for some time, and some time is totally arbitrary, whatever some time is necessary. Some people need to stay on the breath for five minutes, some people need to stay on the breath for an hour in order to get to the point where the uh, breath becomes so fine, it's totally individual. And then when the breath has become so fine that it's difficult to find, then the feelings in the body arise, which are entirely peaky, which means rapture, but it also means interest. We have also the translation of interest, because that's the first moment when the interest in the meditation really arises, when people really want to keep on meditating. Until then it's a chore. Until then it's a sort of thing, well, yes, it's like when we were children and our mothers used to tell us we have to clean our teeth. I mean, mother might know what she's talking about, but I don't really want to clean my teeth. And then she kept on insisting that we do clean our teeth and do it every day and do it morning and night and all that sort of thing. And up now we're still doing it. And it's become second nature and we also realize why we're doing it. Now the same happens with the meditation. In the beginning we might be doing it because we know it's good for us. But when that state arises, we're going to start doing it because we enjoy it. And then one mustn't be carried away with that enjoyment. Then one must realize that who is totally impermanent. But these states are necessary. And Lord Buddha talks about them over and over again. The states of meditation which are calm, which have the happiness and the peacefulness as their follow-up after the pleasant feeling comes. Happiness and comes peacefulness. And all these are necessary in order to make the mind pliable, malleable, expendable. And when it is expanded and has that malleability and pliability 
then it can see the universe as a whole and itself as just part of that and then not even part of it but only the universe and then it is also willing and able to accept that complete flow that complete falling apart that there's nothing there so this is our way of under of gaining liberation from dukkha and it starts with nothing more exalted or exciting than watching one's breath and this is where we have to start we have to start at the uh, ordinary and uh, not so interesting aspect of it in order to gain the states which are expanded and then one has gained those states then they don't seem to be so or extraordinary or exalted they seem to be just part of one's mind just like a person who has never learned anything about mathematics couldn't possibly understand anything that has to do with uh, logarithm or anything like that but if one has learned those things then well they're not nothing special they're just part of the whole system and so it is with these uh, expanded states of consciousness they're just part of the system of the mind and we need to get at it through continued meditation